You ever thought about the most joyful moments of your life? I mean, it's a Christmas, right? You're supposed to think about all the joy. Maybe, maybe Christmas is one of those joyful moments of your life. Maybe you remember a particular Christmas where you got that car or you got that suit or you got that, I don't know, Cuisinart? I don't know. I've been thinking a lot recently about the best moments, the most joyful moments of, of my life. Um, here are a few of them. Uh, they all involve family, of course. Uh, the first time I, I ever met my, my, my wife was when she was uh, living on the fifth floor of Mathis Hall at Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington. And I was living on the eighth floor, and so sometimes we would ride up in the elevator together. I noticed her because she was a friend of a friend. We had arranged that uh, I would drive her during the Christmas break down to uh, Seattle, where I lived, and her parents, who lived in eastern Washington, would pick her up in Seattle and drive her back. Uh, so an hour and a half drive from Bellingham to Seattle to where I lived, and uh, was looking forward to the opportunity to spend the time with her. I took her and an, uh, one other girl, but uh, she sat in the front, front seat, and for about an hour and 15 minutes of that hour and a half ride, we argued. Um, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not sure about what, but I'm pretty sure I was right, uh, as I've been for, for years since. She, uh, but I remember thinking to myself when I dropped her off, uh, and I went to where, where I lived, it was only about three or four minutes away from where I dropped her off, and I, I remember thinking for those three or four minutes, as soon as she got out of the car, it was sort of an awkward, see ya. And she got it, and, and I thought, you idiot, Jeff. Like, you spent the last hour and a half in a car with a beautiful woman, and you can't, you, you get, you're like, you have to be so right about stuff. You can't just let her be right, you know, about, about something. I remember getting home, and I said to my mom, you need to pray for me uh, <laughs> when it comes to the girls, because I, I just, I can't, I don't know what I'm doing. Anyway, uh, so I thought that was basically over, but uh, she had left something in my car on accident. <laughs> but I had to deliver it to her, so I went from my eighth floor down to the fifth floor, knocked on her door. She opened the door and she said, Jeff! And she grabbed me around the neck and gave me this very warm hug. And I was like, uh? <laughs> Whoa. Uh, I had thought that we were done because, you know, but apparently not. I remember going back up to my eighth floor. I was like three steps at a time, boing, boing, like, wow, this is great. Anyway, a few months later for Valentine's Day, I asked her out finally and put a big sign across from her door. We'd been spent some time together, and I, I said, Big white sign, big poster, and on it said, will you be my valentine? And on the bottom it said, yes with a box and no with a box. So I took a risk here, right? <laughs> um, and I, I came back later in the afternoon and there was, uh, there was a big box tick, a big tick mark in the, yes, in the yes box. My friend who was with me said, are you sure it's her? And they were like, you know, <laughs> I don't know. It didn't matter. I was so excited. It was just... In cloud nine, I was so jazzed. Years later, of course, we got married. And uh, I remember one of the great joys of my life was uh, we got married and we were driving from 
the church where we got married, which was in the, in the middle of a wheat field, and it took about 15 minutes to get back to the little town, which had a single grocery store in the middle of the town. And we got back to the town, and it was about 9.30 or 10 at night, and uh, reception was done, but Jeannie, we'd spent so much time talking, she hadn't really eaten very much, and she was thirsty and wanted to have a little something to eat. So we went into this grocery store, it was just about to close. We walked in, got some stuff, came to the front. The lady at the front was closing up, and she'd been there all day. She was an older woman, and she was just slouching, like life had beaten her down. And Jeannie and I were standing there, giddy, and she handed her whatever, Slim Jim, or whatever it was that she had there. It wasn't beef jerky, I don't know. And I said to the lady, we just got married, you know? (laughs) And Jeannie's like holding my arm, like... And, and she said, congratulations. <laughs> I felt like such a geek, but I didn't care. I wanted to hug her. <laughs> Come here. Do you know? I was so excited when I got married. My kids, when they were born, there's their highlights. Uh, my, my oldest son, Ethan, when he was born, he came out and he was yelling, as he does, and uh, screaming his head off about something he just didn't want to be born, I guess, and I, um, I had spent the last nine months talking to my wife's stomach because I had read somewhere that the baby will get to know the mother's voice because she's with the baby all the time, but the father needs to, you know, be involved, and so whenever Jeannie was reading a book or whatever, I'd be having a conversation with Ethan, telling him all sorts of godly male wisdom about things, um, which he's forgotten. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> But when he came out, he was yelling, and I got to hold him because Jeannie had a, she had a C-section, and I was holding him, and I said, hey, what's going on? Why are you so upset? And as soon as he heard my voice, he just stopped crying and went, whoop, and stared right in my eyes. Oh, even to this day. What a moment, right? And he's like, oh, you know me. We're going to be buddies, you know? I'm so great. When my second son, Micah, was born, he came out, and he closed his eyes, like for about 10 minutes. He came out, and it was bright in there, and he just kept his eyes closed. He'd be quiet, but he's just closing his eyes, you know? Just, I'm, not, I'm not convinced that I'm going to stay out here. I'm thinking about going back, you know? <laughs> just hysterical, stubborn little... Anyway. <laughs> a little girl, Sophie, when she was born, she's... You know, like, she's a little girl with a boy. You're like, oh, he's like a football. Just put him under your arm. Just run around, you know. Oh, I dropped him. Oh, well. You know, and you pick him back up. But when you're a little girl, you're, like, holding her so gently and worried that she might break. And she's got the big eyelashes. And I'm like, what do I do? It's like a Fabergé egg. And I was so delighted. Man, I, I, could, I could tell you what the smells were in those rooms. I could tell you what they, I felt. I could tell you, like, it's, I was so elated. So elated. What are your joys? You know, I think if, if you answer that question like me, one of the things that you'll start to say is that the joys were a result, the, jo- the greatest joys I've experienced were usually circumstantial. By circumstantial, I mean it, they depended, of course, on a really great moment. You got the right news, you got the job, you, she said yes, whatever. We won a game, I got the promotion at work, a relationship that went sideways has now been put back together. Those are the kinds of things that we remember, and they're always dependent upon good, good news, good circumstances coming around. But life's not like that. I mean, most of the time, life's pretty average, and oftentimes, it's really bad. You don't win the games. 
She, she checks the no box. Babies don't come or they're born in ways that you didn't expect. Our relationships go sideways. The reason that these big, joyful moments stick in our minds is because they're big punctuations along our life, which is mostly average or dreary or, or difficult. You have a trial right now. I know you do. Everybody does. It's something that's on your mind that's plaguing you right now. The question I have is, can you have joy in the trial? Is it possible in this life to have joy in the trial? It's easy to have joy in the, in the, in the good moments, but what about in the hard ones? Well, I actually think Scripture says, says yes to both. I think that the Bible says that, look, the joy that Jesus is going to give is ultimately better than any victory you could ever have. And the joy that Jesus gives in this life can even be had in the midst of great sorrow. So I want to make that argument with you today. That Jesus is a better joy in victory and he's a better joy in defeat. Okay? We'll look at it in those, in those two. Better joy in victory and a better joy in defeat. So here's the first of those. But He's a better joy in victory. So Luke chapter 2, verse 8. So this is the Linus passage. I mentioned it last week. It's the, he's got his little blue blanket there, it says lights please, and the little droopy Charlie Brown trees behind him. What's the real meaning of Christmas, they say to Linus, and he reads this passage, Luke chapter 2, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. We say, well, what, okay, what is that news? He tells you, today in the town of David, Bethlehem, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Okay, the Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. That term Messiah, you and I hear it differently than the way the first readers or the first hearers of that announcement would have, would have read or heard it. They would have heard it as a military term designating that Jesus was coming to set them free from political oppression. So in the Old Testament, the people of Israel lived under the, under the um, oppression of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and they needed to be delivered. And you know the story, many of you, that they were delivered out through 10 plagues and eventually across the Red Sea, and they sang a grand song. And there were promises that God was going to again deliver the people of Israel who were now under the oppression of the Romans. They used to be under the oppression of the of the Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but now they're under the oppression of the Romans and that God was going to come along and he was going to deliver the people now the way that he delivered them then. And so you had all sorts of passages, what we call messianic promises, that a Messiah would come, a deliverer would come, a savior would come. What's he going to save you from? Well, the oppression, the political oppression. 
So when the angel makes this announcement, I bring you good news that will bring great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, there is born to you a Savior. He is the Messiah, the Lord. In other words, he's saying the king, the military ruling king, the new Moses who is going to deliver you, he, he is here. Of course, that would have caused them great joy. But what, here's, here's the interesting thing is as you start to read the New Testament and the stories of the Gospels, you realize that Jesus is actually after deliverance from a greater enemy than just the Romans. In fact, they get, they get upset with him, many of the people. Like, when are you going to deliver us from the Romans? And Jesus is kind of, it's, it's odd because these people, Jesus is like, really, you guys think that that's your biggest problem, Trump? Like, you think that's the biggest issue, Trudeau? Come on. The biggest issue that you've got is not some temporary political opponent. The biggest issue you've got is the great enemy of death and sin and Satan. You need deliverance from those. And that's why I'm here. So, the point here is that Jesus wins a victory over Satan and death and sin itself. Um, but what I want to show you is how that victory is achieved or how it was achieved on, on Christmas and how much of the Christmas story actually is about this sort of war-like victory thing. I preached uh, a Christmas Eve service a number of years ago where, I, where it was titled Christmas was an act of war, which I thought was funny because it's a Mennonite church. And um, I got a lot of emails saying, do you not know that it was a Mennonite church? And I was like, yeah, but this is actually the way that the scriptures teach this. So I got a lot of Mennonites mad then, and I'm expecting to make you mad now. So uh, let, me, let me just show you this kind of, this imagery, okay, this, this war imagery. So uh, what happens in, in the Bible is that you, when, with the story of Christmas is you have kind of two layers. You have a layer of the Christmas story being on earth. Right? Meaning, like, this is what happened. There was a, you know, the baby was born and the innkeeper and the little sheep and the goats and all of that. But then you also have a description of the Christmas story from a cosmic view. And that cosmic view is one that many people don't know exists. It's in Revelation chapter 12. So, what I want to do is show you both layers because both of them are saying the same thing. So, let's deal with the first one Matthew. Chapter 2, okay, on the ground, Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi. Now, hold on, what's going on there? Um, well, the wise men had come from the east following the star, and they had shown up at the door of the guy who was currently called the king of the Jews. And when they showed up at the door, Herod's door, the king of the Jews' Herod's door, they said, hey, we're here to see the king of the Jews. And he's like, well, that's me. And they're like, no, 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 not you. The new one. Which, of course, if you're the sitting king, you're a little bit freaked out by because you're thinking, wait a minute. You know something I don't know? Someone's going to depose me? So he said to the magi, the wise men, look, uh, when you guys find this king, this baby, why don't you tell me where he is? And I will go and I will worship him as well with all my soldiers, you know what I mean? We'll all bow down. Of course not. Of course he's not going to do that. He's going to go and kill the baby. And the Magi know this, and so they end up going off. They, they bring their gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and then when they're leaving, they don't go back to Herod and give a report. They just go home. So Herod's angry. This is where we pick that up. In Matthew 2, 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. 
So he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and younger in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Don't just read past that. I want you to realize that this is a dictate from the governor of of the area that every little boy in the area, two years old and younger, is going to be slaughtered. So some of you had kids that age. Government of the land comes along and says, you have a baby that age, slaughter him. Verse 17, then what was said throughout the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice heard in Ramah, that's the area around there, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because there are no more. Yeah, I would imagine there would be a lot of weeping. So what you have here is a story about Jesus being born into a land where there's a governor who wants to slaughter him, who wants to devour him. Now, I'm using that word devour because that's the word that Revelation uses to talk about the same event, but from a cosmic level. So on the ground, you've got Herod trying to kill off Jesus. At the cosmic level, it's a little bit different the way the language works. Now, before we do this, Revelation chapter 12, I just need to warn you, there's a dragon here, okay? There's a dragon in the text, okay? So... It's good fun. Revelation's a great time. Some people are freaked out by Revelation, like, I'm never reading that book again. There's like stars and moons and dragons. They, they all stand for something, and so if we read it slowly, you'll see what they stand for. It's not actually that hard. But the way that Revelation describes the Christmas story is this. Revelation 12, verse 1, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. 12 stars because she's probably a representation of Israel, who had 12 tribes. Who do you think the woman is? She's pregnant, about to give birth to a son. She was pregnant, verse 2, and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads, and its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Who do you think this is? In the Old Testament, Satan, when he fell from heaven, he brought a third of the angels with him. So the red dragon, Satan, and the woman about to give birth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth. So the picture is that she is, you know, in the stirrups, ready to give birth, and there he is, the dragon, ready to receive. But what's he going to do? Well, the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. Sounds an awful lot like what Herod was trying to do, yeah? Yeah? But in this case, it's the red dragon that's doing it. And probably the red dragon is doing it through the agency of Herod, who wants to destroy the child. So on the ground, it looks like Herod. But in the cosmic realm, it's Satan motivating Herod to kill the child. But she gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Does anybody want to guess who that is? Any guesses at all? This is like the moment in your Sunday school. You're like, um, I don't know, Jesus? Yeah, that's right. Jesus, what do you expect? We expect him to be devoured, but 
Last line, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. So in that last line, John, the writer of Revelation, says, but it didn't work. The dragon's there, ready to devour the child, but the child escapes. The wicked hand of the dragon, probably through the hand of Herod. And eventually, as time goes on, that child becomes a man, and that dragon still wants to kill him, and this time he uses the religious leaders of Israel, and they string him up. Actually, they, they nail him up to a cross, and Satan thinks, the dragon finally thinks, yes, I won, but three days later, uh-oh. He rises again from the grave, and then 40 days later, he ascends into heaven to sit at the right hand of the throne of God. He was snatched up to the throne of God, and now he sits there, Psalm 110, and he's made every enemy a footstool for his feet. So who won, the dragon or the baby? Um, um, Jesus? Yes! <laughs> yes! So, this is the, maybe the best way to imagine this is, is through you know, imagery we're a little bit more accustomed to. Um, in World War II, uh, all of Europe was taken over by the Nazis, and on the, on, on the, on the shores of France, the Nazis had set up massive military structures with guns pointed in one direction, okay, toward England. Because they were like the only way for anybody, the only one who's left who could come and invade the land and take it back is the English. They would have to come by boat. The Allies would have to come by boat. They'd have to come by plane, and they'd have to come from this direction because that's where all of them are. So there they were standing there with their guns pointed, ready to devour the incoming Allies. But did it work? Well, no, it didn't work. They took, out, they, they took and formed a beachhead at D-Day. It was the decisive victory in the war. And then over the next period of time, the, the Allies spread quickly, in fact, across Europe until we finally reached VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. What's happened in the world today is that that Christmas day, God established a beachhead. He invaded enemy ground, and his son, the Messiah, the Lord, came, established a beachhead on that beach, and is now spreading across the rest of the land and sweeping up what's left. Is, is victory guaranteed? You bet. Because all enemies are a footstool for his feet. We await today, VE Day, victory on Earth Day. Huh, like that? <laughs> we live in between the time, but victory is guaranteed. And so here's the good news that should bring you great joy that should be for all the people, that Jesus is king and that he reigns and rules and will forevermore. And this knowledge should bring enormous joy to you if you're a Christian. This really can be applied in a couple of really important ways. Number one, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, this joy, this knowledge of, that you are going to be, be a victor should bubble up inside of your heart to a degree that you can't even contain it. Because you and I, we celebrate victories, little victories, in massive ways. And this victory is even greater. When I say that we celebrate victories in massive ways, I just, it makes me think about all the times in my life I've celebrated stupid little victories in massive ways. My son uh, won a, um, a volleyball title this year, senior 
boys volleyball title. He plays for MEI. He was the setter there. And so I went to the Langley Event Center, watched the final a few weeks ago, and I was standing next to one of our elders, Graham Nickel, who is about seven feet tall, and he is rather, rather stoic about sports, you know? If, if somebody was playing the violin, he'd be like, <laughs> but, but this is about the sports, and I'm... He came along because he works there, and I think he was probably bullied into it. So there he's standing next to me, and, uh, and we're watching the game. Finally, we win, and so, of course, I, I turn and grab his waist because that's what I grab when I grab him, <laughs> and I'm, like, bouncing up and down, <laughs> and he's like this. This is awkward. Why are we bouncing up and down? I'm so happy. We win. We win. We win. We win. I didn't care. I didn't care. It's joy. Why? Why? We won. How cool is that? It reminded me, though, a couple minutes after I did it, I said, this is not the first time I've acted like a fool when, when we win. Uh, so I will show you a video from two years prior when my son won another thing. I've shown this before, but yeah, here you go. Isn't, that's the way you do it, though, right? I mean, you're just so jazzed. Ah, we won, <laughs> right? Over volleyball. I come on, over volleyball. It's not even a real sport. No, just kidding. It's a great sport. <laughs> we get so excited over the smallest victories, and yet what I'm trying to describe to you here is the greatest victory that could ever be won. Over death. Over our great enemy, Satan himself. And if that doesn't light your fire, man, your wood is wet. Something's wrong. I would even argue that all of those little victories that you and I have experienced over all of our lives, all the winning, all the successes, all the joys that we've had are just small little foretastes of what will one day be. That God put them in your life so that you would feel a little bit of what it's going to be like, but they always are fleeting. You've noticed that? Like the next morning you wake up and you're like, yeah, we won. Huh? When's baseball start? When's the violin start? Whatever. When... It's always fleeting, but there it will never be fleeting. You'll wake up the next morning and it'll be another remembrance of the great victory that is won and another morning and another morning and another morning and another morning and 10,000 mornings in the future you will wake up and rejoice again. This should probably bring some level of joy, Christian, to your heart. And if you're not a believer, if you've not submitted your life to Jesus, if you've not bowed the knee to, to, the, to, the, to the king, now the Bible's really clear regarding what, what's going on here. Like, um, when kings in the ancient world used to come and, you know, they, they set up a beachhead and they started to sweep through the land, they would go from city to city, and the cities were always walled. And when they came to one of those cities, they would array their battle forces on the outside of the city, and then they would send an emissary, a messenger, a herald, in Greek, a karuxo, and they would go in, and they would, and they would proclaim, it's the word we use in the Bible, they'd preach. And they declare the message of the coming king, basically saying, hear ye, hear ye, the king is here, he's going to lay waste to this city, but he's offering amnesty, out of his grace and his mercy, he's offering amnesty ahead of 
time and saying to you, even if you've been the greatest, strongest rebel up to this point, he's saying to you, if you're willing to bow the knee now, all will be forgotten. You will be welcomed freely into his kingdom. So what say you rebels of the realm? Will you bow your knee? If you don't, you will face the judgment of the king. If you do, you will enter the joy of this king. Man, I got to tell you, that, that's, by the way, is what I do. That's my job. That's what I do. Every week, I stand up here and I issue the decree. And I remind you that the king is coming, the king is coming, the king is coming. Bow the knee, bow the knee, bow the knee. That's my job. And I got to tell you, I don't understand why somebody wouldn't bow the knee. If, if what's on offer is eternal joy... And, and free amnesty is being offered out of the grace of this coming king who's already won the victory, who wrote history, and therefore he defines the right side of it. Why would you not bow the knee? Why would you not say, I give up? White flag, you win. It's worth it. So Jesus offers a better joy in victory. He also offers a better joy in, in defeat. Now, of course, everybody's going to get excited when things are going well and, yay, we're going to win and we already won and Jesus is the victor. But what about in the meantime, as he's sweeping through the realm, when we face difficult circumstances? Can we have a joy there? Well, the Bible says yes, in fact. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, can I just stop there for a minute and say that's a crazy statement? Like, that's just, that's just nuts. Sometimes you read the Bible and you're like, are you on the same planet that I'm on? So in other words, I'm supposed to consider it, think about it as joyful when I face whatever trial it is that I face. Oh boy, a trial! Who does this? Okay, so James, you've piqued my interest. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, I want to pull out a few phrases there to give you an idea as to what he's trying to say. The first of the phrases, I got three phrases I want to pull out. The first of them is trials of many kinds. You saw that in the first line, right? Whenever you face trials of many kinds. In the original language here, that language just says many colored trials, right? Many, many colored trials. There are pink trials, there are blue trials, yellow trials, polka dot trials, striped trials, white trials, that's me, black trials, Ezra, right? <laughs> trials, all sorts of trials. Whatever trial that you have right now is Included in what he's describing. So you lost your job. Yep, included. It's a purple one. Struggling marriage, pink. Grief over lost love. Health issues, student facing social problems, a graduate facing an uncertain future, a parent of a wayward child, blah, 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 blah. Just on. All of them are included in what he's saying. He's saying, in other words, whatever trial that you currently face, you should consider it joy. Why? Well, because it tests your faith. That's the next phrase. It tests your faith. 
well, why would my faith need to be tested? Because there's a lot of false faith out there. In fact, many of us might have a false faith. Well, how do I know? All right, let me, little theology, shared this before. I think if you look across the New Testament, one of the things that you'll find is that when the Bible uses the term faith, it's referring to a certain kind of faith. Like, if, let's define what the Bible means by faith. What are its characteristics? So if somebody is truly saved, what kind of faith ought they have? Well, in the past, I've tried to summarize it by using three P words. Okay? I think that when the Bible uses the language of faith and it's talking about saving faith and not the fake kind of faith, saving faith is different than fake faith in that it's professed, it's practiced, and it's persevering. It's professed, it's practiced, and it's persevering. It's professed in the sense that the faith that you have, to, you have has to have some kind of content. It actually has to believe something about Jesus. You can't just say, oh, Jesus seems like a cool dude, he's a friend of mine, but not believe that he's actually the son of God, actually believe that he, was, he died and three days later he was resurrected from the grave, that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. Those are things that you have to believe in order to be saved. See, it has to be a certain profession of faith. I believe he's Lord. But it also has to be practiced. So when you say that Jesus is Lord, the question then becomes, okay, but do you treat him as such? If you say, oh, I believe he is the Lord of all. Okay, but you, is he Lord of you? Because lords, masters, when they give a command, it's not like a piece of advice. I'd really like it if you would. It's a dictate. He's the king. He gets to determine where you go, how you go, when you go. He gets to have authority over your sexual life. He gets to have authority over your money. He gets to have authority over your relationships. He gets to have authority of whether or not you're going to forgive that person or not. He gets to have authority over all of those things. Does he? So if you call him Lord, is he Lord? Is your faith more than just a profession? Is it practiced? I'm not saying that it's perfect. Nobody perfect, perfectly practices, but is your heart willing to submit to the authority of Jesus wherever he speaks? Professed, practiced, and then finally, it's got to be persevering, meaning that it's, this has got to last. It's, okay, it was professed and practiced for one day back in 1986. I'm in. No, actually, the scriptures are pretty clear saying that, look, you need to continue down this path of profession and practice. If you stop professing, you're no longer what you claim to be or you never were to begin with. If you stop practicing, you just prove through the testing that you aren't real. Professed, practiced, and persevering faith. And so Jesus tells stories like this. Oh, okay, so there's a farmer going on a field and he takes some seed and he throws it out and lands in four different places and one lands on the path and some on the rocky soil and some on the, the, the thorny soil and then one on the good soil. All the others don't grow up and mature, but that good soil, it does. And his disciples are like, uh, what? Dude, maybe if you drew this or just stop talking in riddles, it'd be much easier. Oh, fine, he says. Look, when I preach, it's like seed that goes out. The message goes out, and it lands on different hearts. And sometimes it lands on a heart where it's just repelled immediately. The birds of the air come and take it away. But sometimes it lands on a heart that immediately receives it really well, but then as it grows, it does, the roots don't go down deep enough, and it starts to grow up. It looks really good at the beginning, but then when the hot sun comes up, it tests 
the depth of the root. Gets really hot, and if it doesn't have enough moisture, that thing will wither. And that's the way some people are. They face the test of faith, and they decide, I am not going to continue down this path. Right? You go off to college, and you say, when you're in college, oh my goodness, I want to fit into that particular group, and so my former Christian beliefs won't help me fit into that group, and therefore I'm going to drop them. I'm going to stop professing and practicing. Well, what do we say then about your faith? Ah, it was fake. Because truth, faith, professes, practices, and perseveres in the profession and practice. So count it all joy when you face many trials, whatever your trial, and that trial is going to test your faith, and it's going to divide you. It's going to say, well, either you're going to go this way and leave behind Jesus, or you're going to go the other way, and you're actually going to continue. If you continue... What will happen is that that faith, you've noticed it before, will produce perseverance. And perseverance has to finish its work so you can be mature and complete. It's, it's going to make you strong, in other words. I, I, I started lifting weights at one point in my life, and I quit very quickly after. Okay? So people look at me, and they're like, I never skipped leg day. In fact, I never did it. I just got them. Right? But... but Upper, upper day? Yeah, I don't like that day. So, so, my friend Leaf, when I was in high school, said to me one day, Jeff, you look like a big guy. Why don't you come and lift weights with me? You've left weights before. Leaf is just one of these, one of these dudes, right? Huge. Walked around, and I, I said, well, sure. And which is what you say. You, when somebody asks you, have you ever lifted weights before, and you're 16 years old, you say, yes, of course I have. I've been doing it since I was like four, Okay. So that's all I do is I go home and I lift, man. I just, I just lift. Do you have some of that whey protein powder? Because that's all I eat, you know? <laughs> of course I'd not done it. But I didn't want to say that to him. He's like, oh, cool, we'll do some burnouts. I was like, oh, that sounds great. And I remember thinking, that doesn't sound great, right? <laughs> burnouts. Mm. Showed up the next day after school. He takes me in there. We do burnouts. Burnouts is basically, I'm going to make you lift these weights until you basically want to die. Your arms will not be able to physically lift anything. It'll be difficult for you to drive home because you'll be sitting in front of the, the steering wheel going, I don't, how am I going to get, you start steering like, you know? <laughs> I remember actually I was doing these curls and other things like that. Finally, he put me underneath the bar, which is the bench press, which is like the man's thing. And he put the two plates on each side. Okay, go. No. Right? And they took one plate off each side. Okay, Go. Still no. And then he took it off. It was just me and the bar, baby, <laughs> underneath there. You, you sure you've been lifting since four? Oh, yep, 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 yep. And they couldn't do anything. Like, I couldn't lift the stinking bar. Now, if you've lifted weights before, you'll know that the next morning is awful. You wake up, and you're like, I can't, I can't move. I remember going to school and sitting in a classroom, and I had to ask a question. And I, I seriously, I was like, I that's as high as I can get it. Teacher's like, you okay back there, Jeff? Oh, yeah, I got a question. Okay. So he asked me later that afternoon, Jeff, you want to come and you want to lift weights? Uh, no, I've been, hey, my throat, I can't, I'm just not. And I quit. Of course I quit. Of course I quit. So I never developed into the mature, complete, you know, guy that women would think, ooh, I like that. You know, I, I never got there because I didn't persevere in it. See, this is what happens when you lift weights is that the muscle fibers get torn. That's what you do. And they grow back bigger. 
And if you go back, they get torn again and they grow back bigger and torn and bigger and torn and bigger and torn and bigger. And the more that you're committed to doing it, the bigger you'll get. But if you cease to do it, you'll just go back to your scrawny self. If you want to be mature and complete, in other words, if you want to have that physical prowess, it's going to require pain. That's what James is saying. That the pain is producing something in you. And you can count it all joy because of that. You can look at the pain underneath that bar and think, I do not like lifting weights. But you should count it joy because what it's producing in you is something that outweighs even the weight that you're trying to push up. Suffering, in other words, produces strength. And so here's my big point in all of this as we bring this to a close, okay? Suffering, for those who don't follow Christ, is joyless because it's meaningless and purposeless. If you're not a believer, you can't say, oh, God is using this thing to grow me in grace. No, he's not. You're on your own, man. It's just a thing. It's just a pain, but if you're a believer, you can look at every difficult trial in your life and you can say that God is taking this thing and he is working it for my good. And I can even rejoice right now. I might not have a huge smile on my face all the time, but I know deep down inside that God can be trusted to take every last one of these trials and work them for my good. He's producing something in me that is magnificent. There are people who have understood this. Johnny Erickson Tata, one of my favorite Christians in, in the world. She dove into a, a lake in 1967 and broke her neck. She woke up in a hospital unable to move her arms and legs. 17 years old, she struggled with thoughts of suicide as you would. She was asking why this happened to her friends. Nobody could give an answer. And finally, after laying in there in that bed for months and then years sitting in a wheelchair, only being able to move her neck and had she paints with her teeth. She finally said, uh, Reflecting on it, she said, I'm convinced that God's motive, God's purpose, his plan in the accident in which I became paralyzed was to turn a headstrong, stubborn, rebellious kid into a young woman who would reflect something of patience, something of endurance, something of long-suffering, who would get her life values turned from wrong side down to right side up and would have a buoyant and lively, optimistic hope of heavenly glories above. Right. She can even count it all joy, she says. Facing that trial. Let me finish just by saying that um, one of the things I love about our kitchen here is how hard they work and how fantastic the food is that they prepare. If you're around the church for a while, though, during a week, like this week, I've been here every night. I've been around for a while. It's, what's really fun about it is that you see certain um, items of food that were prepared earlier in the week show up in other dishes as the week goes on. It's not the same dish. It's just like, oh, this has, earlier in the week we had eggs and bacon, and now here's eggs in Tuesday's thing and bacon in Wednesday's thing. So I make fun of them sometimes that, you know, they're just back there recycling all that stuff. They say, what would you like us to do? Make a waste, any of it? We don't waste any of it. We're always using every last bit of everything, right? So they're back there, you know, with the innards of all the animals, just throw them in there, you know, here you go, it's brunch, you know? What kind of meat is it? I don't know. Just eat it. It's free, right? <laughs> but isn't that it? That's the, the image, though, of everything is being used. 
That's, that's what God's doing. Everything is being used. Everything's being, every joy is being used to point you. as a faint shadow of the joy that will be, and every sorrow is being used to grow you into the kind of person who belongs there. Man, I gotta tell you, that's a better, that's a better joy than anything on offer in our world today. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm so thankful for your grace. And I'm thankful for your word. And I'm thankful for the joy that you give. It is very easy for us to be joyless people, Father. But I pray that you'd remind us, especially in this Christmas season, that we have every reason to be the most joyful person and people around our region. The parties we throw should be greater. The smiles we have should be bigger. And the confidence we have should be greater. But we know we're not gonna muster that up ourselves. We need the Spirit of God to remind us of what's true. And I pray, Father and Holy Spirit, that you would do this for us, Father, that in this Christmas season, you remind us afresh of who you are and who we are in your plan. Grant us joy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.